For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Carthago Delinda asked, hello and welcome to Everything's Political. I'm your host, Taya Shoemake. You can find us online at everythingspolitical.org. The email address for the show is podcast at everythingspolitical.org. Shout out to Magic Man Joe Strecker, the Daniel Webster of podcast producers. Not sure we'd align perfectly with Daniel Webster's politics, Joe, but he was a brilliant lawyer and I think, in whole, tried to be consistent, um, even when sometimes the general population disagreed with him. And on this day, in 1850, he endorsed and began promoting the Compromise of 1850. The Compromise to End All Compromise, I think, is what John Calhoun said, um, which turned out to be differently than what Henry Clay expected. He was part of the uh, manufacturers of this legislation, which included five bills to deal with the uh, westward expansion, right? We talk a lot about uh, the the war between the states and secession here, and this was part of it. We had the Mexican session that we won in the Mexican War, and we had to deal with the states and the territory and how they would be entered into Congress, free states, slave states, popular sovereignty, etc. And so Daniel Webster took some pretty controversial positions uh, on that legislation. And But, you know, he said, if we want to prevent war and move forward, this is what we're going to have to do. And the North is going to have to come to the table and the South is going to have to come to the table. So it, uh, it, it helped for what, Joe? 11 years, I think. I think all of the, the compromise bill passed in September of that same year, which is ironic, isn't it? That uh, 173 years ago was the last compromise before the war between the states. Hopefully we're not going to repeat that, uh, but we will keep an eye out as always. Okay, I've been looking forward to this discussion with our next guest all week. He is one of America's foremost experts in rheumatology and internal medicine, Consistently ranked as one of America's top doctors, he was appointed to President Trump's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition, and he is the author of two bestsellers, Bad Medicine, and the second one is Medical Politics, How to Protect Yourself from Bad Doctors, Insurance Companies, and Big Government, that incestuous elixir that we talk about on this show often. He is Dr. Stephen Soloway. Dr. Soloway, thank you so much for being on and welcome to the program. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. Okay. So 
Um, Dr. Soloway, myself and many of our listeners uh, have been involved in grassroots politics for quite a while, longer than I care to admit. And we learned a while ago uh, that this country has somehow turned teachers and doctors into administrators, which has reduced their skill sets from teaching to indoctrination and then from diagnosing to pill pushing. Now, we know how it started in education. The federal government, who had no business looking in local classrooms, dangled a carrot and found out a way to encroach. Can you shed some insight as to how that happened in our healthcare system? They dangled two carrots, a bag of potato chips and um, a Coke, and they, they found their way in, literally. Um, <clears throat> so you're aware that um, the New Deal started all these social welfare health systems, and then Lyndon Johnson added to that, and then Barack Obama with the Affordable Care Act. So um, since the Affordable Care Act came along, we had a system, or at that time, prior to him coming along and trying to change the system, which has changed drastically in the last 15 years, and all the problems that we speak about and the things that people are dismayed over, we had a system that was working where 200 million people had private insurance and 100 million people were Medicare, Medicaid, or some combination therein. We also had 30 million people that were not insured. However, nobody ever tells you that uh, of those 100 million people with Medicare, 15 million uh, concurrently had VA insurance. And the VA insurance and the Medicare both come from the same pot of money. So why are they giving some people two insurances that cost the same or, or one more than the other? So one simple solution at that moment would have been to say, okay, we recognize that 30 million people are getting, I'm sorry, 15 million are getting two insurances. So why don't we take those people with two, give them one and go to the group with 30 million with no insurance. And now you'll be left with 15 million uninsured people, which while that's a large number, it's only 5% of the population. And if you have a system that can work for 90 or clearly 95% of the people, why would you completely destroy and dismantle a nuke the system and try to rebuild a whole new system when the actual system, even though, and I'm against social welfare, even though a third of it was social welfare, a third was social welfare, the system worked quite well. Doctors were happy. Good people were going into medicine. People were teaching. Now they don't want to teach. People that are there don't want to learn. The hours were restricted to 80-hour work weeks. The doctors were forced to use computers rather than either handwritten notes or pick up the phone and dictate to a typist. So you literally have to stop what you're doing unless you have two brains operating at the same time within one head or you pay other people to be in the room with you to document everything that you're saying to try to save you time when you have to go to the computer yourself. Because... You can't talk to a patient and take a history that's a, certainly a new patient. You cannot talk for half an hour asking questions, processing the answers, reading the labs they brought with them, the data, the x-rays, whatever it is. You can't possibly formulate a, a coherent thought and type it at the same time that you're getting one answer because then the answer that you're going to write won't make any sense. So you need to leave the room, digest everything, pretend you're having a conference with students and then put it in a paragraph form 
for the government to read to make sure that when you send in your bill, that it makes sense to them. And by the way, the them is not a doctor of your peers, so it wouldn't be, in my case, a rheumatologist. It's a high school graduate, if you're lucky, and whatever their skill set is, their resume, and I can tell you this firsthand, it could be McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, and Walmart. It could could be the toll collector, the the barista. What, whatever job doesn't require more than whatever they teach today in junior high and high school. Look, in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a glorious city by most people's standards, they have a daycare in the high school because half the class and half the school has kids, okay? Well... So that mentality of the government will give us whatever handout is necessary to, you know, just good enough for government work. Our system has been dwindled down, dwindled, dwindled, dwindled. The, the quality of care has been the, the smartest students are now applying for Harvard MBAs. Uh, we are getting um, dumped on with uh, physician extenders. We're getting dumped on with people that speak broken English running in and out of the room because they're thrilled to be out of wherever they came from to get a good job. Because remember, it's a good job now. It's not a career. Right. And a, 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 a conservative, self-thinking capitalist wants to at least be able to think for themselves. You know, And this is where people are wrong. It's not financially motivated. It's You need to maintain your ability to have freedom of thinking. And our ability, our speech has been censored by the government handing over the proxy to Twitter or YouTube or whoever. Well, they've handed over the healthcare to Blue Cross or Anthem or Cigna or United Healthcare or whatever ones, all of they, they're all the same. If, if you think you have the best insurance, I'm sorry, there is no best insurance anymore. If you think you're going to the best hospital because you're going to Mass General or you're going somewhere else in the Harvard system or NIH or Mayo Clinic, you're not. You're not seeing the guy with a couple of gray hairs with 20, 30, 40 years experience. You're meeting a student. The student reports to the resident. The resident reports to the fellow. If you're lucky, the fellow is really astute. And if you're lucky, the fellow will discuss the plan with the attending, which is the guy like me who's gone through all that stuff and has been seeing patients for decades. If you don't get to that point, you're not going to get the care that you're really paying for. You see, your insurance pays for a visit. It doesn't distinguish who the visit is with, or if the, now the visit can be virtual. Now, in my specialty, we have to drain joints or inject tendons. Yet, ha not half, but there's a percentage of people in my own field that do virtual only. So as far as I'm concerned, it's my opinion, by definition, they can't be providing you with what you really need. Yet your insurance is paying them the, the same amount, whether it's high or low, that's almost irrelevant. And those doctors who are really doing that, they're owned by systems. They're not self-employed. The system is often purchased. I mean, the hospital system will, will purchase um, all the practices in an effort to keep all the money within that system, keep all the referrals within the system, and the government, what their stake in the, this game is, is that instead of auditing 
the hundred doctors in the system individually, they'll just audit the one system. So the government has an easier job at auditing the system than they do in, uh, you know, going door to door to door. They'll just go to the one main hub and audit them. And actually they can stay home and audit you by computer. Wow. Now, what is government's, uh, and I can take this back to education as well, because I, I don't think they had the authority um, at all to do this. What is the, the guise under which they come in and say, we're going to regulate or we're going to allow this or not? Because in, in my view, government should have nothing to do with my relationship with my doctor. I agree with you. The government should have no relationship with a lot of things. They should worry about military and they should worry about the police and pretty much the fire department. And that's it. Um, they, they, they pick and choose. They, they look at, um, uh, statistical data. They look at statistical analysis. They say, which doctors are highly paid? Which doctors have the most claims? Which procedures are the highest the payment and now we're going to just randomly go through that group and we're going to say well he did too many cardiac calves therefore he's a criminal they'll never go to the guy and say it's amazing could you tell me how you're so efficient at doing this because we followed your patients that had a calf 10 years ago and they're all alive and they're doing well while the guy over there who did you know 10 percent of what you did all his patients are dead how can you do so much more and be effective? No, they say, hmm, he's an outlier. He did too much. Therefore, he's a criminal. Right. So what do they do? They audit him to death. They harass him. They fine him. They whatever. They put up roadblocks and steeplechases, and they make it unpleasant to the point where all the people that are the doctors for past 50 years old, let's say, a lot of people I know, they've retired, they've changed fields. They've, they said, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to be hassled anymore. <clears throat> yeah. Of course, the people that are getting hassled are the ones that are not part of the system. So like George Carlin said, there's a big club and you're not in it. And we're not in it. Yes. Well, that's we saw a lot of teachers resign or not resign, but uh, retire early when uh, Race to the Top came out. And I don't. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the second or third round of Race to the Top from the Obama administration actually married healthcare and education. So they have that cradle-to-grave data that uh, they usurp the state uh, protections on that data. The people that are preaching cradle-to-grave you know, enticements, how come none of them subscribe to their own uh, thoughts, you know, or not thoughts, brainwashing attempts you know yeah 100 percent. and government to your point always there's always a presumption of guilt it's completely against the blackstone jurisprudence uh that founded this country was that we have a when government is involved and it looks at an industry to target and i would say that government destroys nine times out of ten destroys everything it touches um regardless of its intent right hence the enumerated power of an army um so they they tend to presume everyone guilty and they are the victim and you know they come in and and do their thing and destroy it um that's just what they do now you mentioned um the medical schools and the kind of shepherding that 
has traditionally taken place. Oh, yes. With the new folks uh, coming in or out of med school or in med school and um, in the in doctors who have experience, certainly it's axiomatic that you, in order to have excellence, you need experience, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is one of my criticisms of the one and done in NCAA basketball is that, you know, you have a new set of 18 year olds every year and you never get excellent. You can have, I mean, they can be very skilled, but they haven't meshed, they haven't gelled, they haven't played together. They don't have a lot of experience when March comes around. So uh, what I'm hearing from you is that that is a similar trajectory. And we certainly know that colleges are dumbing down. Columbia just announced, you know, test scores. Not that I put a lot in test scores, but you know what I mean? The SATs, uh, the ACTs, I think law schools are now trying to go without the LSAT. Do you have any insight as uh, as far as what's going on in our med schools? Well, first of all, I will tell you, and I'm sure you're aware of this, and I'm sure the listeners are aware of this. If you go to your local emergency room or urgent care or a family doctor office, you will not see a doctor. You'll see a nurse practitioner or a PA, and this is not a disparagement against them. However, they're not an MD. So let's call a spade a spade. The truth is, if you're paying to see a doctor, why are you seeing somebody else? So there you go. Right there, I've just defined watering down of the, the system. The second thing is, if you're a patient in the hospital, old days, you're a doctor, you'd go to their office, you'd say, I haven't, you know, a cough. They'd say, oh, pneumonia, go to the hospital. You'd go to the hospital, they'd call the emergency room and, and they'd say, you know, Mr. Jones is coming. He's got pneumonia. They would check you out. They'd listen to your heart, lungs. They'd slap on some oxygen. They'd give you your first dose of antibiotics and you'd be wheeled right up to your room. As soon as you got to your room, the nurse would meet you along with the medical resident, the trainee that's out of medical school for a short time. He would also be notified or she would be notified as to what the person's coming from. And that's when they would do their history and physical, and there's where their experience would start. Um, <clears throat> that system, which I went through, worked very well and created a lot of good doctors, irrespective of where they trained. There was a sense of, we want to be here, we're following around the person a year ahead of us, and we're always learning something because we're always next to the person who's one year ahead of us. And we all had access to the attending physician if we needed it. And the emergency room was not a melting pot where you go for a vaginal exam or an eye checkup. Now, every subway creature is showing up expecting whatever. They're complaining about a 12-hour wait, yet they don't belong there in the first place. Somebody should give them a coupon to go to Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, just wish them well, because anyway, let me go back on topic. If you go to a doctor's office and you're comfortable with your family doctor, you now go up to the hospital, your doctor doesn't come anymore because the hospital purchased doctors that speak broken English, run in and out quickly. You don't know what they're talking about. They don't know why you're there, but you're there to document the note to make sure the hospital is getting their money and able to pay you your 100000 a year salary or whatever it is. So there's another dilution of the care. So it's diluted by the gatekeeper, 
and now it's diluted in the hospital. Well, how many more places do we have to dilute it? Well, we can use robots instead of surgeons. We can use kiosks instead of uh, doctors. Um, it, it is continually, and there's clearly there's a, a bigger strategy than anyone can see, other than the the people that are you know in the Democratic Party that are pulling the strings of the puppet that occupies the chair. When this happens and the public doesn't see it, we're actually witnessing the history right now in front of us. Unless people and doctors were all to take a stance, we're going to pay fee-for-service. We're going to go back to the way things were in the 50s, 60s, 70s. We're in this, we're, we're, we're being flushed down the toilet right now so that in 10, 20, 30 years, there won't be a need for doctors because the artificial intelligence in the computer will be there, except artificial intelligence doesn't have sympathy, feelings, can't digest um, nuances or can't understand slang or whatever the story is. As smart as the computers can be, they can't be smarter than the human programming them. And the human programming them, if, if they're a decent, God-fearing person, they have empathy and they could look at you and they can make decisions on the fly where the kiosk or the DNA machine will say, look, you know, genetically you're supposed to have blue eyes and, and breast cancer, but I have a cough. Okay, fine. It's part of your blue eyes and breast cancer. You know, so there, there's a lot of problems. There, there really are. It, it used to be so much fun to be a doctor. So what do you think is that one thread that would un start at least to loosen the Gordian knot that we have here? When, you know, you say that, you know, we need to go back to the um, paid service. I don't think a lot of people would be upset with that. I just think that people are used to, hey, I don't have a copay or whatever. Who has to start that change? If you look at Manhattan, a lot of the doctors, a very large percentage of the doctors in, in um, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, they don't accept Medicare assignment. And I think people should, uh, doctors should look to Manhattan as an example and simply stop taking Medicare assignments. And by stopping taking it, the patient will pay, you know, a fair wage or, or a fair fee, or they'll say, you know, you're too expensive or you know, your years in practice don't justify your cost or whatever the story may be. And with that happening, there'll have to be a swinging of the pendulum where the, the patients and the doctors are now dictating. Right now, the, the tail, the government, is wagging the dog, the doctor, and the patient along with it. You know, Obama wanted to um, cut off your dialysis benefits at age 75. So basically, you, you would die at 75 if you had kidney failure. Well, where does that come from? Where did the number 75 come from? I mean, why not at age 100? You know, I mean, everything's about the government trying to, well, currently, at least tax and spend, as opposed to really fix the problem. Now, Democrats and Republicans are to blame. They're all to blame. To me, there's one party. There's billionaires and there's peasants. And we're not in that other club of billionaires. So, you know, we can't just hand a, a gold card at every visit and say, you know, I don't care if my labs are $6,000. But everything can reverse itself if doctors would stop uh, falling to the demands. And they're not laws, they're demands by the insurance companies. And, you know, granted, they take their direction from Medicare generally, they all follow suit. 
somebody just has to be ballsy enough to say, look, I'm not doing this anymore. And people have. So Manhattan is one example. Um, you don't see a plastic surgeon taking Medicare, do you? I mean, you don't see these various specialties dealing with this garbage. Right. So people have to consider their general health the same as plastic surgery. You just have to view it as very important to you. No one's no one's upset paying a hundred grand for a facelift in New York City. No one. Um, but everyone is going to squawk about a ten or a twenty or a fifty dollar copay. So come on, you know what's your priority? Yeah, hundred percent. Now you mentioned Medicare, and and I'm I'm not there yet, but I want to prepare, <laughs> uh, uh, be proactive about when I get there, Lord willing. Um, it, now, is Medicare mandatory for everyone at 65? It is. Um, even if you're working, you must sign up for Medicare. But if you maintain your job, you know, you are employed or whatever, you, you'd have Medicare as your secondary insurance, not your primary insurance. Um, if, if you're past 65 and you, and you go on Medicare, which we all have to, the key thing is to know what supplement to get. And the supplement today, at least, that would be the best would be AARP because that's the only one that doesn't treat you as an HMO. All the private payers have been funded by the government to be an HMO for Medicare. So again, you have the illusion that Medicare covers everything, except that illusion went away and it is, an, I'm sorry, it became an illusion because right now your secondary insurance, your Aetna, your Blue Cross, your Cigna, your, that's just ABC. I mean, we go down the list. They're the ones that dictate the formulary, what medicines you can get. Not, not what your doctor prescribes, but what you, you're allowed to get. So you have Medicare and they cover 80% of your bill, except your private they denied it, so Medicare won't pay because it was denied. It was an uncovered service. Well, who decided an uncovered service? Whoever feels like it at that insurance company, and they all have different rules. They all have different formularies based on what deals they made with the pharmaceutical company, with the um, wholesaler. You see, the patient who goes to the doctor with Medicare and whoever, they don't realize that it's no longer carte blanche. They can't just go get an MRI. The MRI needs to be approved. And you might say approved by who? Well, step one of the approval process is a high school graduate or less. And they're usually paid to just deny everything. Kind of like people applying for disability. There's a rampant run for people to be disabled when there's nothing wrong with them. Well, there's been a reaction from the government that everyone is denied the first time. If you come back a second time with a lawyer, you get disabled. Because that's what they're paid to do. They, they, Again, it's, you know, I think a lot of the legal system is, and the government, the government and the legal system, if you notice the government's made up of a lot of lawyers, they've, they've created a lot of fake work, a lot of fake jobs, a lot of fake stuff. If you look at the people that are working in government institutions, they can't be fired. Right. They're not necessarily the friendliest people. They're not necessarily the most helpful people, yet you see them every time you go, and they're not they're not helpful. They're, they're just, they're almost there to discourage you from coming. Um, it's very, very bad. Now you mentioned, uh, Medicare and we're all forced to go on Medicare at 65. When and how did that happen? Um, so 
again, back to the New Deal and then to LBJ and through today, this is all part of that um, continuum. It, you know, it started um, started early on, um, and why or how it actually became law, I don't know. Mm. I'm, I'm going to tell you publicly, I don't know the answer to that question, but I can tell you for a fact, it is the law that you must, because if you don't go on Medicare, you're going to be penalized on your Social Security benefits. So yeah. you must sign up. I realize I'm, I'm, I often try to quote laws to men with swords, uh, and I'm, you know, those are government people. Um, but I, the idea that government would force me, I mean, that's like Obamacare before Obamacare, that they would force me to sign up for something. Yes. Um, under, under the guise of my protection or whatever. And I'm, I'm of the mindset that government was instituted not to keep me safe or healthy, but to keep me free. And I will think for myself and I'll make my own decisions and I'll weigh my own risk. Um, that aside, the, the whole Medicare fiasco seems to be just that. Um, it, it seems to be the, the entrance, and correct me if I'm wrong, to a lot of the, the fraud and scams that we see with our older people who you know trust in the system, who trust their doctors, who have now, and, and if I'm hearing you accurately, have gone from being uh, self-employed entrepreneurs basically to employees. Oh, that's 100% accurate. 100% accurate. You show me an employee, and I'll show you somebody who is not 100% committed to their career. Because it's not their career anymore. And, and the government has brainwashed the current generation to believe that it's important to only work 9 to 5 because you need your free time. Well, I don't understand that. I'm Somehow I'm, I made it out of a generation that, uh, uh, I guess it was my parents that just... He says, look, you work harder and longer, you know, that that's just how you get out. That's how they got out. I was blessed to be the first one in my family to go to college. Um, you know, not that in hindsight, it, it was it was a big deal at the time. Uh, well, I, I think if you didn't go to college, you would never know what you missed. It's not what you learned in the classroom. It's the interactions with people. It's navigating from almost adolescence to adulthood learning how to make your bed and eat on your own, maybe pay your bills on your own, right. uh, maybe uh, go to school and have a part-time job or compete in athletics in intramurals or with your classmates or something like this. So it's like a, um, it's a taste of the real world. And that's what college is. College isn't about, you know, oh, I have a biology degree and I remember that, you know, this fish eats that fish because it lives in this water. That's so irrelevant in everyone's life, unless you're a, a water biologist. But, um, you know, that whole experience, had it been missed, you wouldn't notice it until you were 30 years out of that age. And you'd look back and you'd say, why is it all those other people seem to be more comfortable in life than me? Not even financially, but just a, a, an air about themselves. They know how to make dinner reservations. They know how to call a cab. The other people, they don't seem to know how to do anything. Again, they were programmed to be taken care of from cradle to grave. And that seems to be okay with more and more people. It's absurd. Those of us that don't like that, we think it's absurd. And we are looked at as demons or Satan or something for having this attitude that, yes, it's really good to strive for more and rise, even if rising means 
you become the manager with the store you work at it. You know, again, it's not financial. It's a matter of pride and self-thinking and being free. Right. And, and confident that, hey, and I think we saw this certainly over the last three years, if something hits the fan, I'm going to be okay. I, I have resources. I have a thinking mind. I'm, or, uh, you know, or I'm a critical thinker and, uh, and, and we can make it through this, you know, if, if that's what's to be, but certainly the mindset that someone's going to take care of me or put this, uh, you know, they put the little spongy things on the playground that, uh, I didn't have growing up, right. We skinned everything when we fell. And, uh, I, I feel like that has been placed under a lot of people. So they're not, they don't have to fall hard or rise through adversity, which I think is every bit as important. Um, I mean, I don't know about anybody else's experience. When I was in college, I worked at least two jobs because we, I had to. And I'll tell you, in hindsight, I wouldn't have it any other way because right. that, that was just, that promoted so many things in, uh, from me that I know I still have within me to do and make it out in those four years because I couldn't afford a fifth. Right. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And there is something about that that is very comforting. Um, not that we don't accept help or, you know, whatever, but uh, but there is something comforting about that self-reliance and the, the self-sufficiency. Well, those of us that feel that way apparently are shrinking, but I agree with every word you said. I myself was working at uh, Woolworth. When I was 13 or 14 and too young to get working papers, but like my mom always said, gosh, you know, it feels good to have your own money in your own pocket. And even at 13 years old, I went there and asked for a job and they knew I was too young and they paid me peanuts and they'd give me cash in a little envelope for the four hours or eight hours a week that I worked back then. Um, you know, but then it became shoveling snow and then it became mowing lawns and then it became scooping ice cream and lifeguard and this and that. All, all in the name of getting to a point where I can actually have my own career. You know, again, self-reliant upon myself. And if, if you have a doctor, and, you know, and you're the patient, you want a doctor that understands the rules, knows what's in the box, but knows that 90% of the problems are not in the box. So if you can't have, if your doctor is forced to, with you for 15 minutes or less for a visit that doctor is in the box and if you don't have something that hits a red flag immediately your visit is almost negated but you still had to pay for a full visit but if you come to somebody who's an entrepreneurial capitalist hard worker who doesn't look at the clock oh okay you know we have to dive into this a little bit more because the box is here and you have, you have an issue in 10 different boxes, we need to figure out where you are because the textbook only writes what's in the box. It doesn't teach critical thinking. And to be successful and help people, you must have critical thinking. If you don't have critical thinking, then you should not be in this profession. And the paradigm has switched so much that we are recruiting people that don't want to think. And again, the government wants that because these people are now easy to control. That's all they want. This is all about government overreach. Almost every problem that exists today is about government overreach. And frankly, you know, you get all these lefties 
who they say, oh, if so-and-so is president, I'm leaving the country. Leave. We don't need you here. I mean, seriously, if you're... Yeah, wide open borders, you can leave. Yeah, yeah. But why is everyone still rushing to come here? Even with all of our problems, people are flooding, you know, all these illegal immigrants. Those are smart people. They want to come here. Whether they're whether their agenda is nefarious or really good, they want to come here because there's still freedoms that still exist. They've clearly been cut down. Clearly don't have the free speech. For, clearly don't have freedom of the press. Like the Bill of Rights has, has basically been torn up in front of our face. And yet people are still rushing to come here and nobody's leaving. So where is this Kool-Aid that people are brazen enough to get up and say, I'm going to leave this country if, well, yeah, I mean, if you have $300 billion and you want to have a home in all seven continents, sure, you go where you want, when you want. And again, that's the epitome of capitalism because you'll move with whatever you need to. But if the government has suppressed you into submission and you have no money and you don't have a gun and you can't protect yourself and you, you can't learn because the books that you like are being taken out of the school and you're now being taught, you know, how to hold a, a, a wonton soup or a spoon or, you know, nothing that's important. You've had your thinking evaporated and therefore you're stuck in the cradle to grave mentality. That's why they don't stop illegal immigration because those people that are coming, they're thrilled making $2 an hour because they're not going to get murdered for being, you know, standing in the wrong street. Yeah. Although that's happening here now too. Look at these places, Minnesota, Portland, um, you know, some of these places have just, they've just become uh, unrecognizable as U.S. cities or states. Yeah. Amen. And people just continue as if it's not taking place. That's what's maddening, I think, to people like us. And in, in addition to, we have all these lines in society that used to protect, to some degree, um, the moral and social compass and now with the lack of critical thinkers uh, the way i put it is we all uh, most people now go a mile wide and an inch deep right the old adage yeah. i don't want a doctor that goes a mile wide and an inch deep i would like a doctor that says okay you have this issue going on and don't get me wrong when i need a subject matter expert if i need brain surgery i need a brain surgeon right so i appreciate uh, uh, the subject matter experts. But I also would prefer someone that says, you have this going on, but let's look at these levels. How is your insulin resistance? What is your inflammation uh, uh, count going on? Or, or what are your cortisol levels? Or, it, you know, your vitamin D levels? All of these things that could trigger that doesn't necessarily have to do with that box, right? So it's a, it's a functional approach because the body is a whole, right? Yes. Is we, back in the day, uh, my family went, I didn't, I was uh, still very young. I still went to a pediatrician, but my entire family, and I come from a, a pretty large Italian uh, descent family, and everyone went to this one doctor where I grew up, and he was, he was a DO, and, but you would hear that the first thing he would do when you walked in his office is he would adjust your spine. And then he would sit down and you could be in there for two hours. But he would make sure that he knew what was going on with you. 
um, not just your body wise, but your counts, your um, mental, was there any stress going on in your life right now? You know, stuff like that. And, and everybody loved him. And when he retired, it was just like that, you know, everybody went crazy. So in today's world, when your doctor retires, you don't even notice because you probably don't even see that doctor the next time because the system owns all the offices and they put people every month in a different spot and you never really get to have a relationship, but there is no more doctor-patient relationship really. Um, I'm a a subspecialist, you know, and a rheumatologist, but a lot of people, they ask me, you know, please, please be my family doctor. I'm like, no, I don't do that. I don't have time. You know, you're already complaining. I'm running three, four, five hours late and you're asking me to take on more. It's not possible. I just physically don't have the hours, but to your point, you're you're so right. The, the old school doctor that got to know you doesn't exist. Yeah, now we're just passed on to the next one in the system. It, it seems like. Uh, they- yeah, and remember, it's the government system. It's not even the healthcare system. It's all about the government. You know, we're really not far out. I tell people all the time that we're living with socialized medicine right now, and we are because you you can't get the test you need. It has to be approved. You can't get the medicine you need. It has to be approved. And sometimes it will never be approved for a number of reasons. But, you know, we're not really far off from, you know, living like the people live in China. That They have, you know, a, a million people out of a billion that are, you know, wealthy and roaming around doing what they want. And they have a billion that are kept captive. And, like, you know, whether they're locked in their home or whether they're in a concentration camp or whatever, we're, we're not far off from that. You know, the, we have you know, 50,000 or 100,000, you know, 0.1% or 1% of the population that has enough money to, you know, say, screw everything. The rest of the people are all, you know, falling into this, you know, abyss of, you know, you're going to do basically what we tell you. And who knows, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if food is rationed soon and who knows, just, it's just, it's clearly a, a spiral because the government seems to be growing. And, um, thinking, I mean, look, look, look at the colleges, you know, there's 360,000 Chinese nationals flooding our university system, right? That's an accurate number. And I asked a high government official, why do we keep them here? And he said, well, their money, it's time to stop worrying about their money. It's time. Look, I mean, our debt, you know, the, the China, not, not hundred percent accurate on my numbers, but a trillion dollars by Japan, a trillion dollars, China, close to a trillion dollars, you know, Saudi, Germany, uh, Brazil, you know, you just list them, you know, who owns our debt? I mean, it's generally, I mean, some enemies and some allies, but still, you know, all we have is $31 trillion in debt and climbing. You can't get out of that mess. It's, it's, it's insurmountable. Yeah. hundred percent. And Dr. Stephen Soloway, I appreciate um, you being on the show again, bad medicine book. .net is where you can find Dr. Soloway's work. And I, I just want to pivot here before I let you go. And I'm so appreciative of the time that you took with us this morning. Um, in your practice of rheumatology, yes. are you seeing an uptick uh, of, of patients or conditions? Um, I see. So for one, I don't exclude any diseases in the field. I see a lot of rheumatoid arthritis. I see tons of psoriatic arthritis, Crohn's arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. I see tons of medical orthopedics, which is non-surgical, which is things where I've patented the needle to treat trigger fingers, carpal tunnel, 
tons of arthritic knees and rotator cuff tendonitis. I mean, all diabetics are going to get rotator cuff tendonitis and carpal tunnel. And they, they should be going to a rheumatologist, not an orthopedic, because they're not surgical issues. So I'm seeing tons of that. I'm seeing tons of gout. Um, and it, it's poorly managed usually because I noticed that I'm like a garbage can. Everyone who's coming to me has seen two orthopedic surgeons, two rheumatologists, two neurologists, two physiatrists. And I'm always the last guy to get all these people. And we have, you know, months long waiting list. You know, we could schedule people 24 seven for the rest of my life. And as long as I keep up the quality that I'm giving, I don't see that changing. Um, because again, I don't rush the people, but it's amazing. Like even the really rare diseases, like to you, polymyositis and scleroderma may be really rare, but to me, they're like kind of normal. And to me, really rare is, um, ankyovasculitis or inclusion body myositis or relapsing polychondritis of which I have eight and eight is considered a lot, you know, so I, I see everything, but there's no increase in a particular disease. I will tell you this, most people, and I wrote about this in the book, in the patient section, which is entitled room for dummies. Um, the people that are walking around with fibromyalgia, 90% of them absolutely don't have fibromyalgia. The majority of them have dysautonomia, which the listeners can look up, but it's basically a lack of the, the brain's the central nervous system, the arms are the peripheral nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is what you don't control. It controls your sweating. It controls your heart rate. It controls um, if your stomach processes the food or if you get acid reflux. If you pass out easily, it could be because the blood is not going up fast enough and the pressure drops. So this is all under that dysautonomia heading. Everybody walking around with fibromyalgia, if they most likely they have dysautonomia, and then there's about 10% that I find have either rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, or another inflammatory disease that's been overlooked by everybody. And why, why it's obvious to me, I don't know. And why it's missed, I don't know. Um, but again, it, it, it all goes to what is your desire to, to allow yourself to engage in critical thinking and just not look at the clock? So I, I, and I'm glad you, you mentioned the uh, inflammation because with all the itises mentioned, uh, you know, it, it's my contention. Well, I've, I've read a lot to um, have the opinion that most chronic disease starts with inflammation. Is that, would you say that's accurate or? Well, historically, there are some people, and they may be right, that every condition is ultimately an infection. So stomach ulcers used to be too much acid, you get an ulcer. Well, then it was found out that a, a bacteria, H. pylori, is the cause of ulcers. Um, so without me being able to give you an encyclopedic list right now, that was one example of the fact that there are thinkers out there and they may not be wrong, but everything may boil back to all inflammation may start with some virus, some bacteria, some fungus, some pathogen that is in the air that we either don't know about yet, we haven't seen yet. Now, the only thing that can be aligned with that theory would be the situation with the train derailment where you have toxic chemicals that are going to stimulate the same problems. So you can have things, you know, 
So you can be born with an impaired immune system and then you'd get inflamed. But by and large, the other 99% of the people that were born with a normal immune system, the theories are either a toxin or, or a pathogen, meaning a bacteria, virus, fungus, parasite, etc. That one of those things, unknown to you or to medical science, has stimulated a reaction in your body that, in the example I gave, causes stomach ulcers. That's fascinating. I, I read, I think it was on PubMed, um, about the study that found that the main cytokine responsible for the most damage in a SARS uh, infection, um, which when it turns to COVID, when it goes from the virus to the infection, the main cytokine is interleukin-6 that goes throughout the body and creates all this inflammation and havoc. And the uh, interleukin-6 is produced predominantly in fat cells, which is why the obese remain a high-risk stratifier, which makes complete sense but why wouldn't people put that information out? Well, I want to jump on the answer, but I got to tell you this. One of the treatments that was used in the sickest COVID patients was the interleukin-6 blocker called tocilizumab, also known as Actemra. And because of that, all the rheumatoid arthritis patients that were on tocilizumab didn't have access because that's one of our main treatments in rheumatoid arthritis today, and it was hoarded for COVID in the hospitals for the sick people. And I'm not saying it shouldn't have been given to those people, but they should have produced more because the people with rheumatoid arthritis shouldn't be punished. They have a disease, they're on medicine. So, you know, so the cytokines, whether it's TNF or any of the interleukins, these are typically pro-inflammatory. They're stimulated. This is no longer, you know, new science. This is, you know, this is well-accepted science. So, I, again, the answer to your question is, I wish I had a good answer to give you, but if these things are known about, and they are, like, we were giving the interleukin-6 blockers in the hospital, and then we stopped doing it. It was either too expensive or we had a shortage, and then it was almost like a fad. It, it went away, but it worked for everybody that got it. And then the other, the monoclonal antibodies in, in the case of COVID, they worked beautifully. I mean, the president had COVID. He looked terrible. He got a shot of, um, I forget which uh, biologic they gave him, but it was a, a monoclonal antibody that blocked COVID. It was a, a combo of two monoclonal antibodies. He received it the next day he was campaigning and he was like perfectly healthy. But that was only for billionaires and dignitaries. I know many billionaires who give tens of millions of dollars to hospital systems, and they all got monoclonal antibody treatments. Why didn't everyone else get it? It merely the price. Well, that's where the government should use its muscle and say, look, you know, you can't charge $100,000 a shot. You've got to give for free. Until this pandemic is over, you, you need to give this stuff for free. It works. We know it works. Everyone knows it works. Because even the vaccines, we know you get it, and you can still transmit virus, and people still get sick. I mean, granted, the death rate may not be as high, but there were so many things that were done incorrect because they didn't consult with people who want to think because the government is not in the business of getting people to think. They're getting in the business of people who want to listen or need to listen or have to listen. People that are compliant. Yeah, yeah. That's a good word. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and I think also the thinking was if there are other options or even off 
off-label drugs that work, then that EUA may not have gone through, if I'm understanding the law. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, that's true. Yeah, yeah. If something else worked, then the EUA couldn't go through. But again, that that's such narrow-minded thinking. This, there's room for both, especially in a pandemic. Yes, two things can be true at the same time. You're absolutely right. Um, we, I was diagnosed with COVID, I think, in 2021. Um, I have a wonderful doctor, and uh, he said, do you want monoclonal antibodies or, or ivermectin? And I was not very sick. I thought it was allergies until I couldn't smell. And then I thought, oh, well, maybe I have that. And I said, well, I'll take ivermectin because I don't think I'm sick enough to get the monoclonal antibody. I don't want to take that from someone else who's, who's maybe sicker. And I'll tell you what, I've, on day two of ivermectin, we have a marathon here called the Flying Pig Marathon. I could have run that marathon and lapped the winner twice. Um, I, I, I don't know what, I, I don't understand the mechanism of action in ivermectin, but I think everybody should be on it twice a year for cold and flu season, and it would be better than mom's milk of magnesia um, <laughs> for a seasonal, uh, a seasonal cure. But um, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you what, uh, what you would suggest, maybe two or three things, um, just based on your experience, what people can do, what you would suggest people do to keep themselves healthy, whether it's vitamin D levels, etc. Number one, eat a healthy, balanced diet. Number two, get serious cardiovascular exercise four hours a week or five hours a week. And avoid unnecessary substances, whether it be excess smoking, alcohol, or sugars. Those would be my three number one things. I mean, my those would be my three best things. Diet, exercise, you, and avoid. Diet, exercise, and avoid bad substances. But, you know, to your point, you should go for a yearly physical and you should have your vitamin D checked. Everyone should. Um, everyone should have their cholesterol checked. Everyone should know what their blood pressure is. But the majority of people who eat a healthy diet, who are not morbidly obese, who exercise, you know, real exercise, um, whether swimming, running, rowing, biking, doing something like this four or five hours a week, getting the heart rate up, those people are less likely to have the typical cardiovascular risk factors, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, um, the excess visceral fat, uh, the cholesterol plaques. Um, so they kind of go hand in hand. If you eat healthy, if you exercise regularly, and if you don't smoke or drink to excess or don't use illicit drugs, more than likely, unless you have a genetic predisposition, which many people do, which is why you need to be checked, you're more likely not to deal with those health problems that are preventable because, you know, people look at diseases like diabetes and hypertension as, oh, they're, they're so easy to treat. Just take a pill. Well, they're actually so easy to prevent because we know so much about how they occur. And, and that's where there's a disconnect. You know, here, here's something I got to leave you with. Why is it that the insurance company would rather pay for you to go to the ICU to spend five days in a diabetic coma and force you to eat a proper diet and buy you a sandwich. Tell me. Money. I mean, they'll, what, but they'll spend, they'll spend money on a patient in an ICU, which is 10, 20, $30,000 a day. 
but they won't get you a proper diet to keep you out of the hospital. And the proper diet is going to be $30 a day or something like that compared to $30,000 a day. This is a simple principle that it just doesn't make sense. Well, do they want to keep you sick? Well, do they want to stay at war all the time to keep fueling Boeing, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics? Of course. Great point. That's a great point. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, I, this has been enlightening and inspiring and a little bit daunting, but I can I can handle it. <laughs> and Dr. Stephen Lake. I only speak the truth in my eyes. Amen. I hear you. That's what that's what we do. And I'm sure, like us, you get a lot of grief for doing so. hundred <laughs> percent. Yes, I do. But, you know, you can't put a price on being able to look yourself in the mirror, right? Your face means everything. Exactly. Exactly. 100%. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Soloway, for being with us. Uh, badmedicine.net. No, no. Badmedicinebook.net. I'm oh, sorry. Bad, badmedicinebook.net. And you'll get a signed copy if you order it from badmedicinebook.net. I will personalize it to whoever orders it on badmedicinebook.net. Outstanding. So I encourage all of our listeners to go to badmedicinebook.net and uh, get a signed copy of Dr. Stephen Soloway's books. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being here and sharing your acumen with our listeners. Thank you very much. Okay, wow. Well, I could talk to him for hours. I wish he had a practice in Ohio. So, healthy diet. Four to five hours cardiovascular work each week, at least, and stay away from bad substances, right? Toxins, sugar, etc. Uh, badmedicinebook.net again was that website. And uh, folks, we got we have to be our own advocates. We have to make good decisions, especially moving forward. Okay, appreciate you listening today. Thank you, as always, to Magic Man Joe Strecker. Until next time who will stand at either hand and keep the bridge with me. Have a great day.